This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 206th episode of Awards Chat, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is a living legend who is best known for his work as a director specifically as one half of the Merchant Ivory director-producer team that was behind beautiful literary adaptations like 1985's A Room with a View, 1987's Maurice, 1992's Howard's End, and 1993's The Remains of the Day, and who is also a tremendous screenwriter, most recently responsible for adapting Andre Asaman's 2007 novel Call Me By Your Name into a script for the 2017 film of the same title that ultimately was directed by Luca Guadagnino and received massive acclaim, including a Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar nomination for him, the great James Ivory. It's worth noting that Ivory has somehow never won an Oscar, but is widely expected to win this one, a result that would make him, at the age of 89, the oldest Oscar winner ever in that category. And, barring a win this year by Best Documentary Feature Oscar nominee Agnes Varda, who is a week older, the oldest Oscar winner ever, period. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by my friend and colleague Rebecca Ford, our awards editor, to discuss the Oscar landscape heading into the start of the final round of voting on Tuesday, February 20th, and extending for a week after that. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this past weekend, something very interesting happened, and I'm not even talking about Black Panther opening and having such a historic showing at the box office, because I think we'll have a whole year to talk about that. We'll probably be back here talking about that next year. But I'm talking about the BAFTAs, which have only further confused matters by giving their top prize to three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, at a time when the Best Picture nominees are each collecting accolades everywhere, it seems like. Just to quickly recap for our listeners, three billboards is now going into Oscar voting, having won the top BAFTA Golden Globe Drama and SAG prizes. Shape of Water is going to come in having won the top Critics' Choice PGA and DGA prizes. Get Out having won one of the two top WGA prizes. Lady Bird having won one of the top two Golden Globe prizes. That one for musical or comedy. And the list goes on. So at this point, and also accounting for the fact that only the PGA of those others that I mentioned actually uses the same kind of ballot that the Academy uses, a preferential ballot, Do you have any sense of which way the wind is blowing here? I think it's been the weirdest year in a long time, which we've all been saying for a while now. But I really have thought for a while now it's between Shape of Water, Three Billboards, and maybe Get Out Mm -hmm. was my my third guess. I didn't think Three Billboards was going to sort of sweep at BAFTA like it did, and that makes me sort of lean more in that direction at this point. But 
I don't. I still think it's either Shape or Three Billboards. So it's a nice year for Fox Searchlight in yeah, my mind. In that sense, yeah. Although, <laughs> although choosing between your children is never easy, yeah. I'm sure. And Disney, so, uh, yeah, the whole Disney acquisition puts yeah. their own fate in. <laughs> yeah. but, a final yes, year of we'll fun see. for them. Yeah. I'm not sure. But. but I mean, you have also seen, like, like I have, that the one thing that these groups have almost all agreed about is that the best director of the year is Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water. Historically, they were reluctant at the Academy to break up picture and director, but then we had this preferential ballot come into the picture about eight years ago, and that has changed things. We've had splits the last several years. Last year, Damien Giselle won director for La La Land, Moonlight wins picture. You had that also with the year of Alfonso Cuaron winning for Gravity and then 12 Years a Slave winning Spotlight one picture in the year that Inuritu wins director. Are we potentially seeing a replay of the thing that we all missed last year when La La Land was like The Shape of Water, sort of a fantasy, lovable movie that came in with the director winning everything, with the most nominations of all the films, everybody sort of regarding it as the front runner, and then it blew up in our faces? Is that potentially happening again? I think the thing with this year is no one is is being super confident in their guesses, so nothing can blow up in <laughs> right. anyone's face. So like we all learned our lesson last right. year. So I think you know there are people who can say I was right about three billboards if it's three billboards, or I was right about Shape of Water if it's Shape of Water. So I don't think we're setting ourselves up for such a embarrassing failure in our in our <laughs> guesses as we have before. But I do think when it comes to the the split, that's something. Like you said, we've seen for years now, and I I can't imagine it happening again. You know, I do think Guillermo's got this locked for director, so I wouldn't be shocked if Three Billboards then gets picture. I mm-hmm. I think the split is becoming a normal thing, and shouldn't you know we shouldn't expect them to line up like they used to, like you were saying years ago. So I just I don't know. I think it's been so exciting, but totally unpredictable. But I think we're all prepared to not be shocked. Right? Yeah. <laughs> this I year. can't. Who knows? And I guess I you know one other parallel potentially to last year was that I think we underestimated the importance of the zeitgeist being the movie of the moment, which last year turned out maybe we should have paid attention to the fact that things changed after Trump was elected, certainly after he was inaugurated. People didn't feel like a singing and dancing movie anymore. They wanted a movie that was gritty and dealing with real things, and that was Moonlight. So this year, I don't know if The Shape of Water, as wonderful as it is, And as much as they're trying to argue that it's sort of also about immigration, you know, the other coming in and being not welcomed and things like that. I mean, it seems like the one that is actually relevant to the moment is Three Billboards and Get Out to an extent as well, because there you're dealing with, of course, you know, the racial tensions in the country. But with Three Billboards in the last week, right after the Parkland, Florida school shooting that was so terrible, spontaneously, supposedly without any influence from Fox Searchlight, Three billboards popped up going after Marco Rubio in Florida. Mm-hmm. And it sort of it, it spawned a whole conversation about maybe something like that, shaming people into doing the right thing, is going to be a tactic that is replicated throughout the world. Are we overanalyzing it to think that they may be tapping into reality in a way that these others aren't? I think three billboards definitely seems to tap into sort of the anger that a lot of people may be feeling in the country. And, and I think you're right. A timely film is definitely has an advantage in the race now. And, you know, even when I was at, at Sundance and when I've been around, you just feel that people emotionally are so emotionally charged right now that I think that 
can overflow into this race for sure. But I do think every film has sort of made a message that it is mm-hmm. timely, whether mm-hmm. that is, you know, Guillermo's sort of fantasy film, but he talks a lot, of course, about immigration mm-hmm. and, and being the other and things like that. Or as you said, Get Out, of course, has this obvious racial injustice and police brutality and all that sort of thing in it, too. Mm-hmm. So I think every film has that message. It's just who... Yes, like is- Lady Bird's the movie of sort of female empowerment of this year. Yeah, right. Female director, female story, you know. I mean, they all have crafted a message. Mm -hmm. It's just which one are people listening to and feeling actually rings true. Yeah. And before we put too much stock in BAFTA, I guess we do have to acknowledge that for the last three years, they've gotten it wrong in the sense of, you know, predicting, not that that's what they're trying to do, but anticipating what the Best Picture Oscar is going to do. They had last year La La Land, they also had the year before The Revenant, and the year before that they had Boyhood, none of which ended up winning. So, you know, maybe it's a fluke that they went for three billboards. And it, it does seem weird because it's the least British of their options there. Not for, I guess, you know, first of all, their most nominated film also, like the Oscars, is going to be. Theirs was Shape of Water. But then they had Dunkirk, they had Darkest Hour, they had very British movies, and they gave not only Best Picture, but also Best British Picture which is bizarre to me, to Three Billboards. Three Billboards is set in America. It's about American problems. The only thing that's British about it really is its director and you know producing team. But So that was a little weird. But to come back to the fact that any one of these nominees winning will, will sort of break precedent, I, I saw an interesting sort of s- several stats bandied about this week that I think are worth considering, and that is how much history each of these nine Best Picture nominees would have to defy in order to win. So I just want to quickly go over those, and then we can talk about it. The one that has the least history, least amount of history that it will have to defy is Three Billboards, which comes into the Oscars with no Best Director nomination for Martin McDonough. It's been five years, going back to Argo, since a movie won Best Picture without a Best Director. So there's that. Shape of Water has 22 years of history going against it. It's been that long since a movie won without even being nominated for the Best Ensemble SAG Award, their top prize. We all thought that was going to be blown up last year with La La Land, but in fact, that was one of the few stats that predicted that La La Land would not win. So we'll see how that stat holds up. With the third least stat inhibited, I guess, in a way, is Phantom Thread, actually, which has 32 years working against it. It has no major guild wins. The last time a movie won with no major guild wins, 32 years ago. Then Lady Bird, it's been 37 years since a movie won with no craft nomination. So we're not seeing Lady Bird anywhere beyond picture director, actress, supporting actress, and original screenplay. So that would be an interesting bit of history there. Then 84 years of history working against both Get Out and Call Me By Your Name. That's how long it's been since a movie won Best Picture with fewer than five Oscar nominations, which tend to sort of signal strength across the Academy. That would be interesting. And then 85 years of history working against Darkest Hour, The Post, and Dunkirk. In the cases of Darkest Hour and The Post, it's been that long since a movie won Best Picture without a nomination for either director or in one of the screenplay categories. And in the case of Dunkirk, that long since a movie won with no acting nominations and no nomination in either of the screenplay categories. So, you know, what do, what do we make of that? 
actually when you were saying that i think it's so interesting that get out and call me by your name are grouped together in that because i feel like those are the two that have the biggest advantage with sort of the new academy members and those are films that i feel like that group really Mm -hmm. loves and supports so i think as interesting as the stats are i feel like we can't depend on them anymore because everything has changed in the last couple years you know moonlight sort of proved that for all of us that as this membership changes so do you know what's going to win and, and things like that so i think out of all those things you said i thought that was really interesting overall but i don't know i've always believed that to to win best picture you you have to be really admired or respected by the crafts mm-hmm. department and you know as you said ladybird didn't get a lot of those so i think that does really affect its chances mm-hmm. and i still do believe that and i think shape of water has a lot of admiration mm-hmm. from all those departments and guillermo is very loved mm-hmm. so i've always felt that that is the one that has the best sort of heat behind it yeah i think you make mm-hmm. a very good point about the fact that in a way all of this history that i just cited is actually sort of irrelevant when you think about the fact that the preferential ballot again is a pretty new thing and could affect this quite a bit then in addition you've got 20 percent of the members in today's academy out of the roughly 7500 weren't in the organization two years ago and are not necessarily proportionately represented in these other groups that we reference, PGA, whatever, because they are, a lot of these new members are based all around the world. And that's been a deliberate thing. So I guess it really, in a sense, it comes back to the old William Goldman thing, like nobody knows anything. Who knows? (laughs) That's not something that I feel good about saying because that's (laughs) what what our job is. Yeah, why are we here? But, you know, we'll see. I want to move on to just touching upon some of these other categories that are also, of course, important. And beyond picture, there are a lot of them that are looking very tight this year. You've got foreign language film. I think any of the five could win. Maybe the same for even best cinematography, where it could be the year finally for Roger Deakins. It might be the year where we not only have the first female nominee in the category, but maybe also the first female winner, Rachel Morrison, who also, by the way, shot Black Panther. But to me, none of them is harder to call than Best Original Song. And I want to ask you about that, but let's first just mention what the nominees are. You've got Mighty River from Mudbound. That is the one that Mary J. Blige, along with two others, is up for. You've got Mystery of Love from Call Me By Your Name, Suf John Stevens. I believe I'm saying that correctly. Remember Me from Coco, Chris Anderson Lopez and Bobby Lopez, who are past winners for Let It Go from Frozen, Stand Up for Something from the movie Marshall, Diane Warren and Common. Diane Warren, nine nominations over the last 30 years, never has won. Common, two nominations, the other one two years ago, when he won for Glory from Selma. And This Is Me from The Greatest Showman, this Pasek and Paul, who won just last year for City of Stars from La La Land. Where do we begin with this? I think we begin with Pasek and Paul. I think they, you know, won last year with La La Land. And This Is Me is sort of this like kick-ass anthem that's playing during the Olympics. So I think a lot of people are are hearing this music, even mm-hmm. if they didn't see The Greatest Showman. Right. And um, I actually went to an event this weekend for it. And the star turnout was sort of crazy. Damon Chazelle was there. Emma Stone was there. Ricky Martin was there. Mm-hmm. It was thrown at Darren Chris's club that he's opening in, in Hollywood. And they performed a bunch of songs and 
And you just feel like they have this sort of Hollywood community behind mm-hmm. them. They're they're very loved in this community. So to me, that feels like the the one to beat. Mm-hmm. But you know, as you said, Diane Warren's been been in this race a lot and and really wants a win. And and I think Common is also a very well respected musician, mm-hmm. and and that helps. And then. And then you look at someone like Suvian Stevens, who's not doing a lot of press, but mm-hmm. is a very loved musician on, in his own right for his own music. And he created these sort of beautiful songs for Call Me By Your Name. So people might love that. But I, I really think Pacing and Paul are sort of the one, like I said, the ones to beat. It's interesting how many wild cards there are with this category, just based on looking at how it's gone in recent years and this year. I mean, I think that talking to voters, they... More often than, first of all, we have to say, on the ballot, it doesn't say any of the individuals' names who we've talked about. It just says the name of the song and the movie. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of voters that I've spoken with, they say, if we see a movie that we didn't see, we just immediately don't consider that song, which is bad news for Stand Up For Something and also This Is Me. Although, as you say, thanks to a very well-run campaign, This Is Me is being potentially heard in other ways, but... A lot of people do stick to the rules technically and say it's partly also how the song, it's supposed to be how the song is employed in the film, which would be to the advantage of Remember Me, which is played, I think, in five different ways in the movie. It's certainly the most used, but then there's the question of how many voters really watched Coco. I guess if you have kids, you probably did, and you probably have heard that song so many times that you're done with it, but that is the thing there. But then if we are talking about which ones have been seen the most, then I think the songs that maybe if if somebody actually sat down and listened to all of them, the ones that would maybe have the least strong chance might actually have the most. Because as you say, the Sufjan Stevens, I mean, that sounds like a kind of homage almost to like a Simon and Garfunkel song from The Graduates thing. It's not a showy song. It's not like gotten the kind of attention that these others have, but everybody's seen Call Me By Your Name. And Mudbound maybe, you know, has some sort of a a similar advantage because of the fact it's on Netflix. Even though it didn't get a picture nomination, people have seen it, and it's Mary J. Blige, and whatever. I just worry that even though, in my humble opinion, the two best songs are Stand Up For Something and This Is Me, I don't know if, if people didn't see the movies, can they overcome that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think... You make a good point with Mudbound because even if it doesn't say Mary J. Blige's name, like we all know that was a Mary right. J. Blige song. And, and we've seen even with the supporting actress mm-hmm. race that people love and like worship Mary J. Blige. So I think even if it doesn't say her name, like people are aware <laughs> that right. the Mudbound song is hers. But yeah, I think you're you're right. It's it's without their names there. And if you haven't seen the film, then yeah, it probably does put a couple of those at a, at a disadvantage. But I, I think... At least when it comes to This Is Me, like they have been making sure people are aware that that yeah. is a pacing ball. And they did win the Globe, so I think that gave them more attention. And so. the Academy does make it hard for you to have the excuse that you didn't listen to any of the songs because now on your on the Academy members section of the website where they log in and they also vote and do other things, they have it available for you to watch and see and hear those songs. So... I guess, you know, it's really going to depend on whether people properly consider all five songs. But I think I'm with you that if I had a gun to my head right now, I would say This Is Me as well, which would be quite amazing to have back-to-back 
wins for Pasek and Paul. That's that's a very rare thing. And then they got a Tony in between them. Yeah, and, <laughs> and uh, I think they have a they just a Grammy. got a Grammy. Yep, yep. So really, they got to start working on TV and get that <laughs> Emmy. But and actually, it was funny. I said something like that to one of them, and one of them said about the other one, "Oh, he has a daughter named Emmy, so he's already there," <laughs> which is apparently true. But all right, last thing we will do is. I think since voting is about to begin and since we've been seeing pretty much all of the movies that were that are in contention, take a moment and go to bat for one or two that you love that might otherwise be escaping people's radar. And then I will do the same. Escaping people's radar. Sort of so flying not- under the radar, you know, not getting the love they deserve. Well, I don't know if this film is not getting the love it deserves, but I, Tanya, has been a favorite of mine since Toronto, I think, where I saw it. And I used to be an ice skater, so I had very high expectations of that movie. But I think Margot Robbie's performance is, you know, everyone's talking about Alice and Janney, and she is amazing. But to see Margot sort of transform into this person is such a big step for her. Mm -hmm. And I had actually met Tanya Harding for a cover we did here. Mm -hmm. And then I watched the movie again with my family a week later and I could, like, her voice is exactly like Tanya Harding's when she's playing the 40-year-old version of Tanya. (laughs) And so to me, that was one of my favorite performances. And and I know she's not expected to win, but I was a big fan of Margo. I am so with you. And you know, I... I think Frances McDormand is amazing in in Three Billboards, but she did win 21 years ago for Fargo, and I think Margot is every bit as good, and it it would be the kind of thing where we would all be wrong if Frances didn't win and say Margot did, but I could be very happy being wrong if it's with Margot. I will put in my two cents for the 90th time on this podcast for The Florida Project, a movie that I love. Sadly, it's only represented at the Oscars this year by Willem Dafoe in the Best Supporting Actor race. That's not in any way to knock Sam Rockwell, who's terrific, in Three Billboards and is considered the favorite. But I just think Willem Dafoe and really everybody around him did such a great job in bringing to life just an unusual story. It's just sort of a slice of life. Nothing that epic happens, but to me it was more moving than anything where where something epic did happen. So take another look at Willem Dafoe and the Flora Project. And with that, Thank you for joining us again, Rebecca Ford. Thank you for having me. And now for my interview with James Ivory. Over the course of our conversation at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel in Beverly Hills, Ivory and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How, as a young man, he discovered filmmaking and his homosexuality at a time when that sexual orientation could make one's life very difficult. How he met, began working with, and ultimately fell in love with the producer Ismail Merchant and how they, in turn, connected with and embarked upon a 50-year collaboration with the author-turned-screenwriter Ruth Praver Jabvala, how he was able to apply his early desire to become a set designer to the films that he directed, making so many period-piece costume dramas that the Merchant Ivory brand became almost synonymous with extraordinary production value, what inspired him and Merchant to adapt the work of Henry James in the case of 1979's The Europeans and 1984's The Bostonians, and the work of E.M. Forster in the cases of A Room with a View, Maurice, and Howard's End, how both Maurice and 30 Years Later, Call Me By Your Name, were both groundbreaking in their depictions of young love between men who are not punished for their actions, but why he actually sees more connective thread between A Room with a View and Call Me By Your Name than between Maurice and Call Me By Your Name, how he handled Merchant's sudden death at the age of 68 in 2005 following surgery for abdominal ulcers, and how he has managed to continue making films without him, plus much more. 
So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ms. Robert, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always begin by asking where our guest was born and raised and what their parents did for a living. I'd be curious to know I was born in Berkeley, California, and I was raised in Oregon, in Klamath Falls, Oregon. My father, we had a lumber company called the Ivory Pine Company. My father was the owner of that, that company, of the mill in Klamath Falls, and then later in Bly, Oregon and then later on in Dinuba, California. My mother was, you know, a mother, yeah. housewife. And were movies a big part of your life as a kid? And, and if so, who, you know, who were the people that excited you? My first movie, I was taken to my first movie when I was five by my parents. And I don't remember the movie, but I remember very well the, the there was a, a, a wonderful newsreel of a revolution going on, I think somewhere in Latin America, I'm not sure couldn't have been Spain. It was too early for Spain. But there was a revolution with people milling about in the street and things being thrown out of the windows of houses, including a large statue that looked exactly like the Oscar. And I can see it to this day, <laughs> toppling over onto the crowd. Right. So that was my first movie experience. If I'm correct, what, I've, what I understand is that you, you know, your initial interest in terms of getting into the movies wasn't to write or direct or do it was to set design right i wanted to be a set designer right what was it about that that appealed to you well i uh, i suppose the, the appeal of it came from the movies i saw i mean i saw a lot of big lush mgm movies and films like gone with the wind and then Wizard of Oz and all those kinds of films that everybody saw and i i was a, as i say a, I, I went to the movies all the time and loved them and went more than once to something i i liked it was something about, even as a child, I was always interested in buildings and architecture and rooms. And, and the, I think the, uh, the films I saw just sort of inflamed that and, and made me even more, more interested. In, and so I, that was what I decided when I was about 16, I think, that I wanted to do. And so I believe you, you go off to college, you study architecture, but what happens along the way that you know, I, you go to USC film school where you were you were back at USC the other night for the USC scripter. But, you know, how along the line did it shift from focusing on set design to actually, I think, initially making documentaries where you were now the director? Well, l- let me tell you that when I was watching all those movies as a kid, I had no idea what a director did. And I wasn't interested in what a director did. And yeah. I had no idea what producers did. I knew what actors did. Mm-hmm and certainly what set designers did, to some extent costume designers. And I knew all that, or, or not didn't know it, but I mean, I was uh, interested in it. But the actual uh, making of films, it didn't occur to me really what the whole process could be until I went to USC. And where I think I kind of shed the notion of being a set designer, well, I, I had been to Venice, mm-hmm. and it, it so um, amazed me, and and that I wanted to make a film about Venice, and I had to make a, I had to do a, there was a, a thesis expected of me since I was um, uh, getting a master's degree, and so rather than writing a thesis, I wanted to make a film, and I decided I'd make a film about Venice, and the, my teachers at USC said, well, I guess you can do that. I mean, they didn't seem all that excited; they seemed slightly strange to them that I wanted to make a film. <laughs> which still seems strange to me, but anyway, they said, as long as we don't have to pay for it. And my father put up the money, and I went off to Venice, and I made a documentary about Venice, and a, a sort of historical documentary in the sense of 
It was a, a film about painters, really, painters and painting, and how painters had shown over the centuries Venice in the very in the many, many different ways they did, starting with the very earliest artists who showed Venice, who uh, created the mosaics and St. Mark's. And right on down to modern times to the cartoonist Saul Steinberg. And that was my film. And, I, and so I, during that, I realized, well, what it is to make a film, because I, I not only photographed it, but I wrote the script, mm-hmm. and I produced it, and I knew what it was to, to make a film. You come back to USC after that. You graduate in what year would that have been? For well, I, meanwhile, I was in the, in the midst of all that. Midway through my film, I was uh, drafted into the Army, but luckily sent to Europe where I could do more work on my Venice film. I went back to Venice and shot more footage and so on. And then I returned and made that, finished that film. I guess one question that occurs to me is because, you know, two of your best films, I think, Morris and, and Call Me By Your Name, both deal with young people discovering love, discovering their orientation at an early age, you know, just out in the world. As you were coming of age at that point, was there some sort of a key moment of discovery for yourself at any of the, you know, whether it was in Europe or back home or whatever? What, when did you kind of... Uh, well, there was never any discovery. Yeah. I mean, it didn't work like a discovery. Who I, I mean, I always knew who I was. I mean, I always had a sense of myself and who I am. I was never... And what I wanted. Mm-hmm. I suppose about the time that I was 14 or so, you know, the whole idea of sex became more and more interesting. So, uh, no, there was never for me like a key discovery or anything or some sort of coming to terms or anything. There never was. I mean, I just, but I knew that, I knew that, because this is, we're talking 1942, 43, mm-hmm. I knew that I had to keep those, keep those ideas to myself. I, they were not something you could talk about. And it took, you know, several years before they could be put into play, as it were. So, now, I guess... Does, does any part of you, like so many people who watch Call Me By Your Name, do you wish that you had a person like the Michael Stolbar character to say those kinds of things to you at, that he says at well, the I end? Well, I had a most wonderful wonderful and generous father, mm-hmm. but it would be impossible for a father born in 1892, mm-hmm. think of that, I mean, what is it, 30 years after Lincoln died, that kind of thing, yeah. to, to take up such, they, they would not be able to even think about such things. I mean, th- those were un- unthinkable and unspeakable kinds of thoughts and mm-hmm. ideas. And I, I never did speak to my parents about either of them about, but I think if you could shift forward, or if they had been able to shift forward by 30, 40 years, they would have been just as agreeable and 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 supportive as Alio's parents were in Call Me By Your Name, I'm pretty sure, because both my my mother and my father were really quite enlightened, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think they would have, uh, you know, come down hard on me or anything or kicked me out or anything of the sort. I want to ask you about your discovery of your love for India, which in a way is what leads you through a really kind of amazing crossing of paths with Ishmael Merchant. So what first put you on to India? Well, after I'd made the Venice film, and, and I came to know a lot about Venetian painting and artists who, uh, who worked in Venice, I decided that I wanted to buy one of the, uh, it was an artist that I didn't include in my film, but Canaletto. Mm-hmm. And he, Canaletto did wonderful prints of Venice. And I decided that I would love to have a print by Canaletto. 
and I asked around at USC in the art department who would be the good print dealers out there who might have a print by Canaletta that I could buy if, it, if I could afford it. And in those days, you could. Mm -hmm. So they told me about a dealer in San Francisco named Raymond Lewis. And he was a, a dealer in old master prints and drawings. And unknown to me, he was also a dealer in Persian and Indian miniature paintings. So I went to see him in San Francisco. And he had been showing all his Indian pictures, paint, his miniature paintings, to some client who I might have passed on the stairs coming. As I went up, that client could, might have passed me going down. I don't know. That's one of those key moments of my life, of going into that art dealer's. And so all, all these Indian miniatures were spread out on tables, and he hadn't had time to put them away and back into their boxes and, and all that sort of thing. And then I saw them, and I thought, these are fantastic. What, what are these? What do they mean? These were pictures mainly, miniature pictures 12 inches high at the yeah. most, say, painted nor usually between about 1600 and 1900, or no, no, more, more 1850. And I thought they were terrific things. And I then and there decided I want to make a film, having just finished an art film about Venetian painting. Now I was going to make a film about Indian painting, mm -hmm. miniature painting. And uh, just like that, I decided I'd do it. And again, I went to my father and I said, I had this idea. And he said, OK, if that's what you want to do. But I didn't know anything about India. I knew I had never been there, of course, and, and I'd never had any particular interest in India. Uh, or Indian art or philosophy or music. Or... Nevertheless, I jumped in. I was even more uneducated on my subject matter than I had been than, when I made the Venice film. <laughs> but I came to know or to learn quite a bit. And that was just at the point also when Satyajit Ray, the great Indian director, his films had just been discovered by the West and were being shown. And it was exactly at the same time that Indian classical music was for the first time being recorded in this country, and you could hear it at various concerts. So all these things kind of came together, mm -hmm. luckily, and I made that film. So now I had two art films, mm -hmm. and then I had the opportunity to make a third one, which is not, not about art as such, but I was offered a grant by the Asia Society of New York to go and make a film about the city of Delhi. It was a sort of a, a profile of the historical and the present-day Delhi. So I wanted to do that, obviously, and that's what took me to India, was to make that documentary. The screening of that, that film about Indian miniatures yes. happened, yes, in 1961 in New York. At the consulate. At the Indian consulate, right. And Ismail had heard about it, and he went to that screening. And then after the screening, he liked the film very much. He just came up to me and started talking to me. Now, let's just contextualize. He is of Indian he was descent. A, he, he, yes, he, very much so. He had been born and brought up in Bombay and educated in Bombay and then, then went to NYU to get a master's degree in business. And while he was there, he, but he always had been interested in films from you know when he was a kid on and he then made a, a an indian dance film with some people that he knew and and a, and a, a well-known indian dancer who was in america and he got that nominated for an oscar this was nominated for best live action short in 1961 so is it correct that he was basically in new york en route to Cannes? With that film, and then, and then uh, yes, and, and the, the film had not won the, uh, an Oscar, but he was en route. 
He was on en route to Cannes with it, where it was going to. It was part of the official selection, and that's when he he met me en route. And he, he was in New York a couple of weeks, and and we met. And Who's Saeed Jaffrey? Saeed Jaffrey was a. He died a, a year or so ago, but he was an actor, an Indian actor, who lived in New York, and he was married to Madhur Jaffrey, the famous writer and actress. They were married then, and because he had, he was the actor that I chose to narrate, to do the narration for, to to read the narration for the Sword and the Flute, mm-hmm. the Indian film, and he knew Ismail. They both knew him, and they sent him off to see the film. So that's how he ended up there that day. That's that's how why Ismail was sent there that day exactly. And so, as you're coming out, you're on the steps. How does it go from there to the point where you end up becoming? I guess, first, you know, friends and then collaborators and then more than that. I mean, what was the evolution there? We met and, and we went to have coffee and uh, afterwards, and he was always on the telephone while we were having coffee. And in <laughs> fact, I think I was loaning him quarters or dimes <laughs> to make the calls. So we talked, and then we agreed to meet up over the weekend. And then he was in New York for a couple of weeks before he left for Cannes. And we got to know each other much better. And, and I also, at that point, Having shot the film on Delhi, and not only a film on Delhi, but one in, uh, I shot in Afghanistan, uh, in Kabul. Wow. So I had two films that I, I had shot, and, and the, the Indian one, the Delhi film, was semi, semi more, almost finished, but I needed more material for it. And I wanted to go back to India and, and shoot some more fo- footage in Delhi. So I did go back to India. Now, Ismail was all set, he thought to make a feature film with some Americans that was set in a village in Gujarat. And he was helping them raise money for it and all this kind of thing, but that all fell through. Meanwhile, I'd come back to India. Well, someone had given a writer in Hollywood named Isabel Leonard, I think was her name, or Leonard, or Agnes Moorhead, maybe it was Agnes Moorhead, that he he wanted to make a film with her. Mm -hmm. Something of the sort. Anyway, she said, one of those ladies said, Read this. This is what you ought to be making a film out of. Because they, she knew whoever this was that he was going to be in India. Well, he, no, just because. Well, he was. He wanted to make an, uh, some sort of film in India and mm-hmm. involve them, but either one of these ladies gave him Ruth's novel to read, and said to him, "This is what you, you should make into a film." And uh, he must have had some cockeyed idea. I, don't, I really don't know what he he had told those ladies he wanted to <laughs> wanted them for right. or what to do. Um, particularly Agnes Morehead, I suppose he wanted her to act in it. Right, right. And, uh, I mean, he never started, you know, or he, he didn't <laughs> believe in starting small. Right, he right. jumped to the... <laughs> so he went back to India, and I then came to India to do some more work on the Delhi film, and then the American film that he was going to make in India fell through. And uh, But he still wanted to make a film, and then he started thinking about The Householder, and he said, well, let's make this, and you will direct it, he said. Had you ever talked prior to that about collaborating? No, not and really. No, I mean, I hadn't, certainly not making a feature film. I mean, I thought maybe eventually I will, I will do such a film, but I hadn't, uh, there was no immediate uh, desire to. I guess it was Ismail's notion that it would be smart to make 
films in India at that time for the international market because of the fact that India had sort of frozen a lot of money that now... That came later. Okay, what was that about? Well, he always had the ambition to make English language pictures in India for the foreign market because they they didn't make English language pictures in India. The the Indian film industry, which is huge and, and which has several capitals like Bengal and then Bombay and then South India... Those films are always made in the in the languages of those of those sections of India, and he wanted to make English language pictures, and that's really what was the appeal of the householder for him. So I guess he or you guys both go to Ruth Prover Jabala. Yeah, we went, we went to Ruth Jabala. Well, he he called her up. He somehow got her number, or maybe it was in the phone book. I don't know. He got called her up and asked to speak to Mrs. Jabala. Well. Ruth was some someone who didn't like to take calls from strangers, and she said, oh, she claimed that she was her mother-in-law. <laughs> she said, yes, I'm Mrs. Javala, but that meaning her husband's mother. And I don't know quite what happened, and neither that didn't fool Ismail. But in any way, we were in Delhi. He wanted to come see her and said that we have this idea about you might like to make a film out of your book, The Householder. So it was agreed that we could go and see them. And we went, and we had a meeting with her, and her husband was there. Cyrus, and during the meeting, Ruth must have asked, well, who will direct this film? And then he said, well, Jim will. Mm-hmm. And then, well, who will write it? She said, well, you will. At some point, we, we said, well, none of it, we've never done this before. He said, well, I've never, produced, I've never produced a feature film before either, but I want to do it. So none of you had done none the of thing us, that you would be doing. None of us had ever, we just jumped in completely, well, like people do. You know, that's what people do when they're young. When you, when you met her, were you surprised, as I think many people are, to learn that despite the, the name that she has, which I guess sounds Indian, that she was a, a German Jew who had left right. the left grew Europe? Up in, grew up in England. And yeah. Yes. I mean, I didn't know all that. I guess in that case, now again, you had to put up quite a bit of the budget. I, I read it was 100000 You take seventy five. Well, so some of the money that Ismail had raised for the other film that fell through right. now <laughs> came into the householder because the people, the investors that he had found... They weren't willing to put up all the money for right. that film, but they were willing to put up some of the money. And right. then now we were going to do this, and I think they felt a bit more secure. Right. I don't know why, because <laughs> maybe because I was an American. I really don't know. So we had the money that he had raised for the other film, which is it was not enough to make that right. film, but we had some. And Did again, you have to go into a trust fund, though, or something uh, I read? Sort of like that, yeah. yeah. But we did put up some money, but we, we managed. But what happened about the, the blocked rupees is that the American film companies, all uh, their profits mm-hmm. from their films, they couldn't be repatriated. So all of the American companies, like Paramount and Fox and MGM, and uh, they all had large amounts of blocked rupees in India. And we made the householder, and we didn't know what we would do with it exactly, but we then came out of India with that film. And Ismail, through someone or other, I can't remember who now, showed it to somebody at, at Columbia Pictures, and they loved that film and wanted to buy it. But there was a catch. <laughs> and they said, well, we will buy it, but we want to pay for it in, with the frozen rupees, and not, not pay in dollars, but pay in rupees. And we said, fine, because with those rupees, there were 400,000 rupees, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. That was more than $100,000. We knew we could make another film. Mm-hmm. And by that time, we were already thinking about Shakespeare Walla. Yes. 
So that's what happened. And that's, those were the frozen rupees. Later on, when we made our third film in India for Fox, it was entirely financed through their blocked rupees in India. I mean, Fox had millions of dollars in blocked rupees there. And Ismail understood all this almost immediately, what to do and how to do it. Amazing. How early on did you become Merchant Ivory? As, in, as oh, far straight as away, the, straight, straight away, away that was the name with, the with the householder, yeah. Why not Ivory Merchant? <laughs> it didn't sound good. Right. Was there ever any possibility that you could have been the producer and he could have been the director? Or no, you, no, no. I, I have no business sense of that kind. I mean, or or the kind of imagination, uh, you know, to understand where is the deal? Is there a deal? Will a deal be good or bad? I, I have, I'm hopeless in such such ways. Uh, not not so hopeless now, but, right. but at that time at that I was completely. Uh, I didn't know anything. Now, also, if it's if it's okay to ask, I mean, I'm curious. Was it right from the start that you two were also personally involved, or did that only come over time of collaborating? No, right from the start. right from the start. Sure. And how does that? You know, same. I would I would ask this to anyone, man or woman, working together. What, does that complicate things at times? You can't go home and get away from the necessarily the the frustrations no, or the challenges. No, no, but uh, we fought like mad all the time. I mean, <laughs> down to almost his last day on earth, we did. I right. mean, we had lots of fights. I used to fight with Ruth too. You yes. fight if you you know if you're if you want to do something, you you sooner or later are going to fight with your collaborators over over some issue. I involved myself sometimes, and I should not have, and I was not really I didn't do it very often, but sometimes in. I wanted people to be paid more because they came to me wringing their hands, saying, "Like, like the editor said, look, I can't possibly, I can't possibly edit this film with just one assistant. I right. have to have four assistants, right. things like that." And I, I would bring pressure at that point, and then there'd be a fight. <laughs> now, if at some point, if you had ceased being a couple, would you have continued to work together? Would, would you think that would have been possible? You know, being a couple, uh, he was my greatest friend mm-hmm. and um, my, the closest person to me in the world mm-hmm. and it was never something that ever came up. Yeah. I mean, we were just totally exactly. close and doing d- doing what we wanted to do. Yeah. And we were doing it together and we were and we were successful at doing it. Because Shakespeare Wallet turned out to be quite a quite a success. And also had a, a few elements I think in that case with such a Right. Well, yeah. yeah. He, but, he he composed the music. And also, you use this cameraman, right? Yeah. For the householder, we we had his entire crew. He wasn't making a film at that time, and so we had his cameraman and his sound man and his assistant, and all these people came to to work on the householder from Ray. So eventually, you you make your first film in America, I think, as Savages, nineteen seventy two. What was the indie scene like at that point? You know, I want to quote something Ismail said in one interview. He said, quote, We are the ones who started what independent cinema is all about. We are an independent company. I feel that if there is a book written about cinema, Merchant Ivory will have its own chapter, close quote. And I absolutely agree, but I think it's important for people to realize, you know, what you were coming up well, against. Well there were other independent films being made. Um, we, weren't, we, maybe. we weren't the only one making a, in, independent films. And they really, they weren't all that independent. After all, we made a film for Fox. So that mm-hmm. was a studio film. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we were independent and having to fall back on our own resources, and sometimes not. I mean, sometimes we were able to make a studio film. But, yeah, I suppose the, it's the oldest independent film company in this country. Yeah. As far back as Savages, I think high production value was important to you. I read a story there about you 
putting tinfoil on cutlery that was going to be way in the background so that it would shimmer, stuff like that. Where does that, in a way, obsession with detail and desire for nice things... Well, I'm sure that came out of my childhood. childhood, My childhood interest in set design. And you know that all of our films that have had Oscar nominations, they always had nominations for, for Best Production Design. Yes. And twice we won. Yes. And costumes often and other yeah. th- productions. Your work with period piece, costume drama sorts of films, I think started not long after Masterpiece Theater started on television. That was in 1971. Was that at all an influence or was it really the childhood stuff? No, it was stuff? never an influence. Never. And I never watched it. Yeah. I, I never watched it. I hardly watched television anyway. Yeah. And I certainly, no, that was not an influence. But though it was com- often compared to that sort of thing. How about with Ruth, when you guys first started working together, and it was, again, dozens of collaborations over the years, when you first started working together, did you ever imagine that she would have the ability to adapt such a wide range of properties? I mean, by the late 70s, early 80s, you guys were on to the Henry James period with the Europeans and the Bostonians. I mean, that's quite different from where you started. Well, we started out with original screenplays. Mm -hmm. I mean, our very first film was an adaptation of her book. Mm -hmm. And then the next adaptation we did was a film called The Wild Party, which was based on a poem by an American poet. And then we did original screenplays until we got to the Europeans in the late 70s. Our first proper adaptation of a literary work was that, was the Europeans, Henry James. Ruth said, quote, I thought Jim had quite a lot in common with Henry James. The elegance for one thing, nobility for another, extreme attention to people and relationships, and the slow and patient way that Jim has and that Henry James has, close quote. Is that overanalyzing it to think that you personally tapped into Henry James in a way, maybe even not consciously? Well, she once said he was right. She said, because I I hadn't read that much Henry James. I mean, I'd read a bit, and for particular reasons. I mean, I read... When I was doing my Venice film, then I read his his novella, The Aspirin Papers, because that was set in Venice. But I had never really read him for pleasure, as she had done, and so many, many people have done, millions have done. And she said to me at one point, well, Jim, he was writing for someone like you. You were his the reader he was hoping to have. Mm-hmm. I took that seriously. It was a compliment. Yeah. Tremendous compliment. And then and then I did start reading James. And pretty after a while, I had read just about everything. I, I, in fact, I, I think I have read virtually every book of his. Wow. Well, then along comes the E.M. Forcer period, starting with The Room with a View. And I want to ask you, what is at the, the root of your interest in that body of work? Because it seems more than anybody, there were so many of the Merchant Ivory films come from that. Uh, obviously, it started with The Room with a View in 85, then Maurice in 1987, then we go on to Howard's End in 92, and I may even be missing one along the way there. But, I mean, why did you keep returning to Forster? I read A Room with a View, and, well, I had read Forster, Passage to India. I'd read it several times because it's, you know, set in India, and so it was of interest to me for that reason. And I'd read it several times, and then I noted that there were several novels that he'd written, but I didn't, no one came along to educate me on Ian Forster. I mean, I just read the books that were there, and, mm-hmm. and I read A Room with a View, and what I thought was I really wanted to go back to Italy mm-hmm. again. I had been 20 years from the first time I went to Italy to make my film with Venice, and I had gone back a few times after that just for, for short visits, mm-hmm. but 
basically for 20 years I had not gone to Italy and I wanted to go to Italy and be in Italy. And I thought, well, if I made a room with a view, I can do that. <laughs> but while that was going on, those, those kind of thoughts about a room with a view, we were also creating, she and I together, a contemporary script which was set in India, in London, and in New York. And we were working on that, and it ultimately became a novel for her. She took that material and developed it and turned it into the novel called Three Continents. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do another period film because we had done the Bostonians, we had done Quartet, we had done the Europeans. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do a contemporary film. But Ismail jumped in there and got the film rights for A Room with a View. And Ruth also, amongst her other things she was writing, she turned out a screenplay for A Room with a View. <laughs> By that time, I was thinking a lot. I don't really want to do another period film. I don't want to do a costume film. I want to do a modern film. And, and I, I was more and more liking the idea of three continents. And Ismael said, no way. We paid good money to secure the <laughs> rights to A Room with a View. Ruth has written a screenplay, and that's what we're going to do now. And in a way, thank God, right? Because that ended up being your most well, that successful. Well, ch changed our life. It really did. So, okay, so I got my desire to go back to Italy, which has never gone away. I go there all the time. I'm two or three times a year. I'm in Italy. And obviously connects us to Call Me By Your Name as, as well. Right. So. Well, that was, that was my basic reason for doing Call Me By Your Name. It wasn't so much the, the story. Mm -hmm. It was the fact that I it was going to be made in Italy. That's amazing. And, and there is a great line, of course, in A Room with a View where – Quote, I have a theory that there's something in the Italian landscape which inclines even the most solid nature to romance, close quote. So I think that I can see what you would have connected with in that, obviously. You've also, though, made a lot of films about Brits who are abroad, Shakespeare Walla, Quartet, Heat and Dust, and A Room with a View. What's that about? Well, they just came along my path, I would yeah. say, as I was in these other places. You know, when we made Quartet, I read the Jean Rhys novel, and I, I've always been interested in Paris in the 20s. Mm -hmm. And those novels were set then, and I just wanted to wanted to make a, a film in France. And, I mean, it's, it's always a matter of I want to be in these places and go <laughs> to them. So at the time that A Room with a View came out, you and Ismail had been working together for 24 years. Financially, your biggest hit had been The Bostonians, which had grossed like $4 million in the U.S. the year before. And then comes A Room with a View, which I know cost $3 million, but became a huge phenomenon. I, As the New York Times put it, quote, it is playing in cities where no Merchant Ivory film has played before, including Boise, Idaho, and Des Moines, close quote. Why do you think it clicked to a greater extent than those that came before? What was it about it where, you know, suddenly it was on a different well, level? Well, you know, it was a charming love story, basically set in a beautiful place in the same way that Call Me By yeah. Your Name is. So Call Me By Your Name... And Room with a View are very, they're almost twins mm -hmm. and in terms of their appeal to people, I think. They're, they're love stories, and, and charming young people are in love and erotically in love and in a fabulous, uh, charming place. And then I guess you could argue there's a, a connective thread as well, certainly, I would think, between Morris and also Call Me By Your Name. And this was 30 years well, earlier. Actually, there's a closer tie between Morris and A Room with a View. Okay. They're opposite sides of the coin. Both of them are about young people who were willing to live a lie rather than to find the person they, and go off with the person they really loved because they thought they couldn't because of social reasons. And they are really twin films, those two. 
And there's a great resemblance between A Room with a View and Call Me By Your Name, for sure. But, and, of course, they're both set in Italy. A Room with a View ends very happily, and Call Me By Your Name, not so happily, yeah. but uh, also is not unhappy. Morris is uh, rather different in, in that the three young men in Morris were really would have been social outcasts, in fact, criminals, when the story took place, which is like 1913 or something, mm -hmm. they would have been criminals. They would, I mean, if it had been found out that they were having sexual relations and so on, they would have been put in prison, just like Oscar Wilde. Yeah. Whereas that terrible shadow is not hanging over the two boys in Call Me By Your Name. By that time, by the 80s, mid-80s, the world has changed a lot, and many more things are accepted and acceptable than were in early teens. I guess the thing that people love about Morris, uh, among other things, is that, and this is where I guess I see the connection with Call Me By Your Name, there is no punishment in a way that there right. is in so many. So these right. guys, nobody ends up, you know, getting AIDS or nobody ends up getting beaten to death or any right. terrible consequence well, for that being was, gay. That was Forster's intention, and, he, and that is why the book was never published in his lifetime. He said he was going to write a, a novel about a male couple that had a happy ending and where the two went off to live happily forever after. He was determined to do that, and that is what he did. But he could not have published such a book during his lifetime because it would have been considered obscene. In other words, a happy ending for activities which are considered criminal. If it had been published, it would have been considered pornography. Mm -hmm. So it, it could not be published. He almost destroyed several times his manuscript for that book. Wow. Well, let's come back to the business side for you guys, where after A Room with a View, when you're on top of the world, and I'm sure getting more offers to do big movies than ever, why did you instead decide to go and do a movie with an even smaller budget than A Room with a View had had? I think, again, that was... A, Which was that? Which was that? Well, with Morris, right? I mean, here you could have done anything at that point, and instead you were going to go back to well, Forcer. We, we were getting ready for the future. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of interest in us and what we did. And Morris, luckily, was pretty successful. Yeah. It wasn't as successful as Room with a View, but it was. That's why we did the Saves of New York, was because A Room with a View was such a success. Mm -hmm. So TriStar wanted to make a film with us. And, and we said, well, this is what we'd like to make a film out of Tamajanowicz's stories. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, I don't know if anybody had bothered to read the stories or, or, or if they even knew what was going to happen, but we made that film. And then we made a film based on two novels by Evan Connell, Mrs. Bridge and Mr. Bridge. Well, in Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, the thing I wanted to ask you about there, because this is different in a way, it seems, than anything else that I think you had done. You've said that this is the only film that was set in, quote, the world I grew up in, close quote, and was, quote, the only film I've ever made that was about my own childhood and adolescence, close quote. What was, was that? Well, I must have said that before we made A Soldier's Daughter Never Cries. Yes. Because yeah. A Soldier's Daughter Never Cries is also very autobiographical. I guess another thing that comes up with Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, though, aside from working with Newman and, and Woodward, I believe that was also distributed by Miramax, right? It was. And I recently interviewed Donald Rosenfeld, who had been your president of production at Merchant Ivory, who said that Harvey was a nightmare to work with even back then. Is that He, he said it, he yes, treated he, you he guys was. terribly. He was. Well, he, he wanted to mess around with the film. I mean, that, that he couldn't help. He, he had a sort of almost a canine appetite for tearing <laughs> his films apart and, and, you know, wrecking them. And he wanted to do the same thing with Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. But Paul Newman said, look, if you want me to do 
press for that film. I'm only going to do press for the film that Jim and Ruth and Ismael made. I'm not going to do press for some botched thing that you're going to do. And he, he told him that. And so he so backed down. So Harvey withdrew. One other thing that I, I, just as a kind of fun fact, historically, I'm wondering if it's true. I, I vaguely remember reading that Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, was that one of the first screeners? You know, now we all get it. Everybody gets inundated with DVDs of the movies, or at that point it would have been VHSs. Do you remember that going out as a screener to voters? Because it did get some nominations. She was nominated yeah. for Best Actress. Do you happen to remember anything about I that? I don't remember that. Yeah. I'm surprised to hear that. And Howard's End, two years later, another Forster adaptation, and I think in some ways the most successful of any of the ones that you, you guys did. This one ended up with nine Oscar nominations. Emma Thompson won Best Actress. Again, the same sort of period that the movie is set in, turn of the century. In well, so- Ruth urged us to make that film. You were not interested initially? Well, I, it's not that I wasn't interested. I mean, I, I had nothing against the book. It's right. a great book, a wonderful story, interesting in all kinds of ways. But I hadn't really thought about it very much. And she said, after we had finished Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, she said, why don't we attack or try to climb this real mountain of Howard's End? That's where we ought to be. And it was her at her urging that we, we took it up. You know, we'd had, with the Forster Estate at King's College in Cambridge, we'd had, you know, a wonderful success with A Room with a View and pretty good success with Morris. So they were willing, again, to, to give us the rights. I thought it was funny reading something about your interactions with the estate that initially, I guess, with A Room with a View, they thought... Many filmmakers had wanted to make, including Satyajit Ray, uh, who went to meet Forster, had, wa- had wanted to do a, a passage to India. And Forster always refused. And then when he died, well, there it was. And they and we had had great success with a film set in 20s in India, which was Heat and Dust, mm-hmm. which was playing exactly at that time right. in London and doing terribly well. And they invited us, Ismail and me, to come up and have lunch with them, and they wanted to talk to us about something. Well, we knew they were going to offer us Passage to India. I mean, it's just that we knew that was what that was all about, that invitation was all about. But we'd already decided that we really wanted to do, I'd given up the idea of doing the original story of Three Continents, and we'd already decided we wanted to make a room with a view. We went to lunch, and and they did indeed offer Passage to India to us, and we said, well, uh, thank you, and it would be a wonderful thing to do, but but I had other reasons why I didn't want to do that. So I I said, what we really want to do, and Ismail said, we we want to make a room with a view. And then their mouths dropped open, and it was sort of, what? You want to make... (laughs) It's a great work, and you don't want to do that. You want to do this little novel, one of his earliest novels. And we said, yes, that's what we wanted to do. And they were also skeptical when you wanted to do Morris, right? But for a different reason. It wasn't about the subject matter at all. It was because the the reputation of that book was not as high as that of the other novels. And they thought possibly this might harm his literary reputation by making that into a film. And, And it really wasn't about the subject matter. It was the the fact that Morris was, of all of Forster's books, it was the one that would be sort of down at the bottom of interest for scholars and literary people and readers, they thought. Was Howard's End as the third, and I think of, of three Forster adaptations that you guys did, was that in some ways the most effective, satisfying realization, adaptation of one of his works for you? Were you the, the happiest with that one? 
in terms of how it all turned out? They all turned out well, and I was happy on all of them. I yeah. mean, I, I liked making all, all three of them very much. I, I thought, in a kind of funny way, when we were making Room with a View, we'd, we'd, done, we'd done the shoot in, in Italy, and then we came to England to start working there. And I remember the very first day we were working in a little village, and they had all the things there, the period cars and people in costume and all the rest. And... And I was thinking, why the hell am I here doing this? Why am I doing this? Why isn't some Englishman doing this? This should be. This is something for an Englishman to do. And that was my, my attitude about that. Then the next film, which was Morris, I felt it was right to be doing it and that I am in this. And then strangely, now this may sound weird, but this is what I thought. And when we came to do Howard's End, I felt I am above this. What do you mean? I, I think I meant that I am capable now, that I had reached a point where I could deal with such a thing. And before, maybe I hadn't. But I felt that I was somehow mature and developed enough as an artist to handle this, which sort of put me... I don't mean I was above the work yeah, itself, yeah, yeah. but I just was... I'd reached a different kind of level. And when I was very personally involved, which was Morris, and then uh, Room with the View. I was there because I, you know, I, I feel that Italy is a, yeah. div- a divine country. Few people have had back-to-back years like you had with '92 and '93, because '92 was Howard's End, but then '93 was The Remains of the Day, and that one, I, I think, you know, you could argue was equivalently, if not more, successful. I think it had one fewer Oscar nominations, but it did in this case have. Picture, director, actor, actress, and you're back with Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. It feels like, in a way, if there had been, it was almost a culmination, not that it was the end of anything, but just like of everything up to that point. Is that me projecting onto it, or is there a reason that, yes, it's not Forster, in this case it's Kazuo Ishiguro, but was there something that everything you'd been doing up to that point... Well, they were obviously all connected, and I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't have been allowed to make the film for Sony if, if probably if we hadn't already shown what we could do with very literate or literary uh, work involving English and the English people in England. Yeah. I mean, we'd made our reputation with those earlier films, and then Sony felt they could entrust us with that. And I guess in a way it's in the same world as the Forster ones with butlers and, you know, not people... Not quite, not quite. No. Uh, a little later remain, in time. It's later in time, but Remains of the Day is about the aristocracy, mm-hmm. about the upper class, the noble class mm-hmm. of, of England, and the, the other Forster books are not. Mm-hmm. People don't realize that. They're about upper middle class in English, and there's a big difference. One of the strangest things I came upon in, in prepping for this was seeing that after Howard's End, based on its tremendous success and your other films... Disney, you guys went into a deal with Disney to distribute your films for the next three years. How did that happen? It just seems like well, very it different ca- brands. It, it came out of Howard's End, and Howard's End was playing very, very successfully in Los Angeles, and a lot of people wanted us to give them a print. So that they, I mean, other people in the film industry in Hollywood wanted us to give them a print that they could show at home. Ismail always refused. He said, "I will. We're not doing that. If you want to see the film, go to the movie." <laughs> so that's what happened. So Jeffrey Katzenberg went to see. It was playing in Santa Monica, and he went to see it with an audience. And then the very next day, he called us up and and said that he'd seen the film. He loved it. And were we trying to? Was there anything we wanted to make? Were we planning anything? We didn't have any backing, and they'd be interested. And 
Well, there was because that's we we had by that time begun to work on on the Jefferson film. Mm-hmm. We had a script, and nobody particularly wanted to do it, or, or whoever we'd presented the idea to. They 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 didn't much want to do it, and they didn't like the idea of it really, basically. So. We, we told him, yeah, we want to make this film about Thomas Jefferson. And he said, well, that's interesting because we wanted to make a film once about Thomas Jefferson, but we never did. And so they backed it. It just Did it strike you as a, as a strange pairing of, of brands? No, not at all. Not at all. But then it kind of erupted into scandal because people weren't ready. They had forgotten about the whole business of, of Jefferson, the slave owner, mm-hmm. and Jefferson's lifetime companion being his, well, his sister-in-law, basically, right. who was his, also his slave. And this was all known at the, at the time of Jefferson's life. All, all that was known. It was written about in the press. I mean, he never replied to it or he acted like, you know, it was he, he didn't ever reply to any of that. Right. But everybody knew about it 200 years before, but they'd all forgotten about right. that. So the idea that we were... We were maybe denigrating this great liberal founding father that everyone looked up to. It was uh, offensive to many, many people, and right. they all kinds. Of, you can't imagine the kinds of things that were written, and not just by by film critics, but by scholars of right. Jefferson. And so that was the sort of not helpful with Disney. Uh, that was not helpful, and yeah, and, and and because it was Disney making it, then they, a lot of people made jokes about it, how we'd. You know, Disney came into the picture, and then we sex up uh, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson's life. But it had been sexed up and yeah. in print for 200 years, but nobody wanted to know about it. So over the years, Merchant Ivory really became a brand that, if you said it, people had an imag- in their minds what that meant as far as what sort of a film they might be seeing, even though that was probably reductive because you guys did things outside of the period piece, costume, drama, with, you know, but that's what came to mind for a lot of people. And it was very successful during Ismail's lifetime, 31 Oscar nominations and six Oscar wins for stuff you guys worked on. A lot of people imitating it who had their own successes by doing that. There were also people that would give you a hard time. I remember there was this, what is what does it even mean for what Alan Parker, what, what is Laura Ashley movie? By calling them these Laura Ashley movies, what does that even mean? What it meant to me was is that his joke about our movies would be remembered long after his movies had been forgotten. Right. But like, That's what it meant to me. Yeah. <laughs> but I think he was in the clear minority of whatever his issue was. I tried to, there was a cartoon. Yeah. I think it came in the British screen, in, in screen, and there was a cartoon with, with that. Right. With, with that. And I tried to buy that cartoon because it made me laugh. Yeah. And yeah. I, I wanted them to buy that cartoon, but somebody beat me to it, and I never was able to buy it. <laughs> when Ishmael passed away, I think it was very suddenly in, in 2005, I mean, I'm sure obviously the most, the first thing that is just the personal effect of that. But then was there any question about if or how you go on as a filmmaker without him? Was it a how, how would well, life change? Well, I had to go on because we were in the middle of finishing The White Countess. We we had gone to China to make The White Countess in Shanghai, and it had been all shot and mostly edited. And then he died sort of at the end of the editing period, but but not, I mean, into the picture editing, mm-hmm. but there was a tremendous amount still to do. All the sound and music and all that had to be done. And I had to do it. You know, it was a big picture of Sony's. I mean, they put a lot of money into it, and I had to do it, and, and I did do it. And in a way, thank God, I had that work at that time because, I mean, Isma's death was the most terrible thing that ever happened to me in my whole life. 
But I, I had that work, and I finished the film, and it was quite liked, but not totally. I and mean, it was not such a success as we had hoped. But we had already begun to work on The City of Your Final Destination, and Ismail and I had gone to Argentina to find locations, and we'd even found a young actor to play the part of Omar in it. And, and so we were already working on that. But then after that work together on that film, we then went to China to make The White Countess. Mm -hmm. Then Ismail died. And then when I was sufficiently recovered and, and The White Countess was out of the way, we then took up this other film, City of Final Destination, and made that. In an interview, I guess, perhaps promoting The White Countess, you had said, quote, I only really had a feeling for what he, Ismail, did after he wasn't there anymore, and I had to do it. You kind of now had to be yeah, the producer, too. I, I did. I, I, I learned I learned the hard way, yeah. I took, I took a lot of things for granted, mm -hmm. which he pointed out to me endlessly. <laughs> so with Call Me By Your Name, you're just going about your life, and you have neighbors that— is, this was just kind Who of a, bought the film rights to the novel, yeah. So it was just really through fate that they happened to buy it. You happened to be the guy who loves Italy and movies about sort of young love as, as much as anybody. Well, they wanted me to be an executive producer on the film because they thought that by attaching my name and Merchant Ivory's name, mm -hmm. it would help them to raise money, and maybe it did. But at a certain point, I then came into the thing as a Luca Guardinino and I were going to direct it together. Did you know him from before? Hardly. I had met him in Rome, but I didn't really know him. I mean, he, you know, I felt I had friendly feelings towards him, but I, I really didn't know him. Mm -hmm. So I said I would do that, and but I wanted my own screenplay. So I wrote that screenplay. And had you been familiar with the novel before your neighbors got it? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I was having that discussion last night with one of the neighbors who was out here, Peter Spears, and we weren't. We couldn't quite figure out where I had heard about the novel and had I read it or had I not read it when they gave it to me because they came to me and handed me the novel and said, read this. We want to make this into a film. We mm -hmm. think we, well, we want to involve you in this. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe this is what you were just referring to, but at one point you guys were going to co-direct it or something? Yeah, we were going to co-direct. So what exactly. was the issue? The French financiers thought that would probably be a mistake. They had very little money and a very short shooting period. Now, two directors, if they disagreed, not everyone stands around while, while we're having a disagreement, maybe on the set or in front of the actors, who knows what. I mean, it could be awful. And I think that, that was the reason. So it, it was decided by the financiers of the movie that there should really only be one director, and that would be Luca. That was okay. Yeah. I, I didn't mind. So with the writing of the screenplay, the ad adaptation of the screenplay, I thought it was interesting to come across some things where obviously anytime you adapt a book it's there are going to be changes it's got to take a different form it's going to be a little tighter but you made some specific things with regard to history references regarding greek and roman history right that were i wonder if you can share well, what they I, were no what i what i did was that the father professor perlman was some kind of classicist you knew that from the novel but was he a literary classicist or was he an art historian? And so I just decided to make him into an art, an art historian, a possible archaeologist, whose main interest was classical Greece and Rome, and thus the statue that they bring up out of the water. That had, I had to give him something to do. He was, all the time he was sitting around smoking and, mm -hmm. and talking, and, and he didn't really— well, Why ha Greece or Rome? Was there something well, about— Well, because that interests me. 
but also is there something about the freedom of loving whoever you no, love? No, it wasn't really that. It was that the film was supposed to take place next to the sea on the seashore, not inland like mm-hmm. it does. So I thought, well, let's uh, let's. Uh, I've always loved those marvelous Hellenistic bronzes that have been mostly pulled up out of the sea. Some sometimes they find them in ruins and things, but mostly they pull them up out of the sea. And I've always loved those and made a kind of study of it. And I thought, well, let's have a statue that that they find, and that gives the father something to do. Mm-hmm. And it was a much more involved scene than you actually see in the film, and there was underwater photography and all kinds of things which they couldn't afford to do. And they had very little shooting time because it rained all the time while they were shooting. Every single day. It was the rainiest May and June that Italy's had in 500 years or something like that. And they had almost no time to, to do that scene. So what you see is what you got. For you, what was the, the greatest challenge and also the greatest pleasure of adapting this book? You know, making it work. I mean, I felt that... It, I wasn't exactly stepping into Ruth's shoes or anything like that, but, I mean, she had given me a great deal of... We'd had many, many, many discussions over 25 years, 30 years about our screenplays and mm-hmm. and the reasons that she did things and the, how she cut things and how she would get rid of a character if the character wasn't useful, all these kinds of things. And I just... I absorbed... And as I went along, I mean, certain lessons that I had learned from her without really knowing there were lessons really prompted me to do certain things that I did and the kinds of cuts I made in the book. I think I could not have done that if I hadn't had, if she hadn't been our screenwriter for 20 movies. Yeah. I wouldn't have had the sense to do it. Did you ever imagine that the movie, as you're sitting there writing it, had the potential to go over as hugely as it has? And then to what do you attribute its success i mean well, since I, Sunday. I, you, when, when you're making a movie you really you really don't think like that i mean a lot of people say well, could you ever imagine you'd have an oscar nomination while you were writing the script no you don't think like mm-hmm. that it's a piece of work and you want the work to be really good and mm-hmm. as good as you can make it that, that was true of all the films we ever made mm-hmm. we didn't think about what would happen or not happen we First, we always assumed they'd be great successes, and they weren't. <laughs> then we started assuming that they'd be failures, and sometimes they weren't. They were successes. Right. So you learn the hard way that there is no way possible to predict what's going to happen with the film that you're working on. You don't know the, the appeal of that material to, to the public. You can't, you can't possibly guess that. If people who make films, and particularly the studios, could know what is going to work, they'd be in a better condition and and they wouldn't be having like a hundred million dollar bombs. We live today in the age of sequels. Would there have been a lot of people clamoring for one for this movie? They feel deep connection to it. They want one. Lucas suggested he might be into that idea. Are you into that idea? Well, what has Andre Asiman said? I don't know. Well, I'd want to know what he had to say first. If it had his blessing, would you get back on board? I don't know. I don't know. It would be very hard to make Timothy Chalamet, if you were going to have him yeah. be 45. I don't know how anyone in the right. world could could age Timothy Chalamet successfully to make him look 45, but it would be a joke. I mean, right. It, right. You, you wouldn't believe it for a second. It would be so awkward. The last few things here, if I can, I, I know we're winding down, but these are just some big picture last things. What do you make of the evolution in American society towards the gay community in in your lifetime as you said you started out as a young man and it was unspeakable that's right and today today everyone goes off and gets married whenever they want to to whomever they want and that is an enormous enormous i mean it's blessed by 
not only just a smaller circle of society, but it's, it's blessed nationally by the government. So that is an enormous change. I guess gay marriage came along a few years after Ismail passed away. Was that something that you would have, you imagine you two would have entertained yourselves? Would you have bought into that idea? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I, we were married. We didn't have to get married. Right, right. Do you look back at your past films, particularly the ones that you and he made together? And, and if so, what goes through your mind when you see them? Oh, lots of things. I mean, you know, I watch these days when I, since they're, they're all being restored right now, and I, I watch the restorations. And what I'm watching a lot, and I've only just lately begun to do this, I'm watching the performances of all of the supporting characters. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they are so good. I'm just so touched by them. And those, a lot of those people are gone now. Yeah. You know, you're always focused on the stars. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hope that everybody is adding their weight and right. doing the right thing. But you're, you're not really focused on them in the way that you're focused on your, your leading couple or couples. I right. mean, that's where you, all your attention is. And you don't really appreciate and get what everybody else is doing until you start seeing those films again and again and again. Right. I mean, some people are fabulous. I was just watching some of Room with a View, and I'm uh, Maggie Smith and Judy Dench are hilarious. But anyway, if someone could only, for whatever reason, see only one Merchant Ivory movie, let's say they were a visiting film student or whatever, which would you want it to uh, be? A happy movie, and I would say it should be a Room with a View. Where do you most see your influence today? Does something like Downton Abbey strike you as a descendant of your films? Not really. No? Not really. It's people's fascination with the the class system and all that kind of thing, which is which we, uh, I, I can't understand why Americans should be so interested in, in, in that world. I mean, the upstairs and the downstairs. Right. I, don't, I don't know why that's of such fascination to people, but it is. Last question. You are coming off quite a month. You were nominated for the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar, and the film that you wrote has become what it's become, a Best Picture nominee and so much other success. This past weekend alone, you won both the USC Scripter Award and the Writers Guild of America Award. On March 4th, you may well, at long last, hopefully win an Oscar. It somehow hasn't happened yet. That would make you... At 89, the the most senior person ever to have won an Oscar. On June 7th, you're turning 90. What do you make of all of this right now, and what's your outlook? What do, how do you follow it's like this? Some, it's like some hiccup in nature, I think, almost. <laughs> <laughs> this is the way I look at it. Are you having fun with it? Sure. Of course I am. I mean, it keeps me busy, and, and you, want to, you want to be doing something at my age, not just sitting around. So is there another movie coming after this? I'm, I'm involved in two other films, yeah. Awesome. Well, congratulations, and thank you so much for doing this. It's a treat to get to pick your brain. (laughs) You really have. (laughs) Thanks again. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that, and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.